Um, so I'd like to introduce Dr. Ghali, who is a board certified in pediatric dermatology, general pediatrics, and general dermatology, and he serves on both the executive board and the Society for Pediatric Dermatology and on the executive committee for the section on dermatology for the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, what I thought was cool is that he's also the co-director of Camp Brave Skin, and it's a special camp benefiting children with chronic skin conditions. Um, so he's going to be talking about, uh, he was going to initially talk about children and Botox. I'm just kidding. <laughs> we were just joking about that. And he may, he may do the moonwalk later. Yeah, when is Botox too young to start? No, I'm just kidding. He's going to talk about atopic dermatitis and uh, therapies in pediatric patients. Thank you. Please welcome. Thank you. Well, again, thank you for having me. Uh, this, I think this is maybe my fifth time lecturing for the SDPA. I, I first started doing this approximately eight years ago, nine years ago maybe, when Christine Cusera, who is working right down the street from me in Grapevine, uh, asked me to do that. And since then, I've enjoyed the relationship I've had with the SDPA. So thank you for having me back again. I had the distinct pleasure of being only 1.1 miles away from, it, from this office, uh, from here, so if you were, most of y'all saw you were on Northwest Highway. If you go towards South Lake, which is away from the airport, approximately one mile, that is my office. Uh, I hope you guys get a chance to get outside the hotel. This hotel is quite large. Uh, I get lost in it myself. I was coming down the escalator just a minute ago because I was in the wrong spot, and I saw a group of people waving at me. And I thought, wow, the SDPA sent out a welcoming committee for me and they're all excited to see me and lo and behold I look behind me and it's Mark Cuban of the Dallas Mavericks so so it wasn't it wasn't for me I was mistaken for somebody else but again thanks for having me the two talks that we're going to do today both atopic dermatitis and then later in the afternoon we'll do skin signs of uh, cutaneous diseases of systemic disease it's going to be a pediatric perspective so put your hat on of, that you're seeing kids mainly young kids and nobody really older than 18, that's how my, my clinic has been. But a lot of what you do in kids, you can extrapolate for adults as well. Uh, housekeeping, uh, consultant and speaker for Estellas, Coria Galderman, Tennis and Triax. And we're part of the Apple study in our clinic, which looks at the long-term safety of tacrolimus in children. We're gonna talk about atopic dermatitis, and I really hope the goal for this talk is that you can develop some treatment pearls. We're not gonna really get a lot into the pathogenesis of atopic dermatitis, just a few key slides, but are there some tricks of the trade that you can take from today's lecture and apply that to your pediatric or adult patients? That, that's the real goal for today's uh, talk. The biggest thing we see with families, and you could uh, just have an hour-long discussion on this, is when they go, well, what causes it? Is it allergies? <laughs> and you're thinking to yourself, no, probably not that. Atopic dermatitis is obviously a multifactorial disease. The thing that we have to focus on so much with the families is they want a quick fix. And so atopic dermatitis, like acne, is a management but not a cure. And so we have to always remind our patients, even if you're going to take a child and put them on cyclosporin, which we're going to talk about today, that is really a management and still not a cure for this chronic condition. So we'll focus on barrier repair, standard topical therapies, 
The importance of addressing secondary complications. It is so paramount among our atopic patients. A little snippet on light therapy, and then I'll kind of tell you maybe some of my own personal recommendations of what do you do when nothing works and you have that pediatric or possibly adult patient where you may have to consider a systemic agent and how do you go about doing that? Well, the skin barrier is quite important and atopic dermatitis is a disease of the skin barrier with inflammation. Skin barrier is important for two reasons. One, it really is important for permeability. It's where the water goes back and forth through the skin. And then secondly, it's an antimicrobial barrier. And as you know, and we'll talk about later, namely staph can set up as a super antigen and excite the skin. And that can be a, a, a major problem with atopic dermatitis. There's some theories about atopic, inside, outside, outside, inside. Inside, outside theory states that the problem is within the skin that there's T cells going crazy, if you will. The outside, inside, is there's more of a permeability barrier and staph and antigens and other things are triggering the atopic dermatitis. And every time I use those inside, outside, I feel like I'm back at my golf lesson where somebody's telling me about my golf swing. So it's terminology you can hear and use, but it really is, it's a multifactorial disease. Now what's new in atopic dermatitis focuses a lot about filaggrin, a little bit about something called NMF, which we'll talk about, and a little bit about the ceramides. So I think those are some of the new things or new items that we've seen with atopic dermatitis. First and foremost, you may be familiar with filaggrin. It encodes the stratum corium structural proteins. It's very important in uh, transcutaneous water loss. So a deficient filaggrin can cause probably more water loss and more dryness. And filaggrin, as you know, is also key uh, in ichthyosis vulgaris as well. The other things to know about the, the barrier dysfunction is the reductions in lipids. And that's both the ceramides, the cholesterol, and the free fatty acids. And then there's sustained antigen exposure. If you have an alternate barrier, you know, you, your fence is damaged is what I say. Things get through. And those are where you can have dust mites and staph antigens and so forth and so on. Now, what is this NMF that you may hear more about, especially if you go down to some of these exhibit booths? Uh, you'll hear people talking about this versus that, and we offer this and don't have that. But basically, what natural moisturizing factor is, it's the breakdown products of this large protein called filaggrin, which then breaks down into different amino acids. And it's this uh, entity, this NMF, that helps hold the water within the skin. And along with your lipids, it's important in water flux and retention within the skin. So if this is damaged or this is deficient, then that can be a problem with atopic patients. And that's why a lot of the moisturizers, emollients that we'll talk about shortly, address some of that. Okay, what about the ceramides? There are far too many ceramides for me to remember, but basically the things to know about ceramides is they constitute about 50% of the lipid bilayer. So they're very, very important. And ceramides one and three are the ones that have been touted the most as being reduced in those patients who have increased transepidermal water loss in atopic patients. Go through some of the ones that are available. Uh, by Promius, there's Episerum branded. This is approved as a medical device. Uh, in, your, in your slides, I don't think you have the handout here, I've been told, 
but there was a typo and what I wanted to mention here is that what makes this product unique is that they've looked at the different ratios. This goes back to Peter Elias' work in San Francisco where they asked the question, what is the best ratio within the ceramide versus the cholesterol versus the free fatty acid? And they're shown here on the right was that it was a three to one to one ratio of ceramide versus cholesterol versus free fatty acid. Uh, also available, and this is available over the counter, is CeraVe, which has both hyaluronic acid and ceramides 1, 3, and 6, which are some of the key ceramides that have been uh, talked about, available in cream, available in lotion, and you know the different cleansers is available as well. And the newly launched is the Restoraderm product by Cetaphil, uh, manufactured by Galderma, and it has the NMF that we were talking about, so it has some of these filaggerin breakdown products, so that makes it unique for this particular product. And it has something called a pseudoceramide 5, which in, in, in essence also stimulates ceramides 1, 2, and 3. But it is not a true ceramide, but called a pseudoceramide. And I'm not a biochemist, but I just wanted to give you that introduction to those products, which I've had good experience with all three. Now the question I get a lot of times is, are these products better than Eucerin, regular Cetaphil, and others? I really don't know. I have not done a head-to-head. -head. I will tell you that some of our patients say yes, but it's not a unanimous yes. <coughs> Pardon me. Next, I want to focus on topical therapies. And if you think about pediatric, dermato pediatric dermatology, it's always do no harm. So where are we going to start? We're going to start with topicals first before we jump to the oral agents. However, you guys are derm PAs, but if you go into primary care, some of you have came from there, and some of you maybe come from general pediatrics, you'd be amazed. They may start with oral steroids before they feel they're going to use topical steroids, and some pediatricians feel more comfortable with oral steroids than they do with topical steroids, which always baffles me. Let's look at topical steroids, TAR, and TCIs. By a show of hands, how many of you guys prescribe a formulation of TAR for your atopic patients? Probably not a lot, right? What about for psoriasis? Quite a bit more. When I was at UNC Chapel Hill where I did my derm residency, I had a very fine professor from Harvard that trained me and mentioned for dyshydrotic eczema, for really thick kind of eczema that's not responding, and for psoriasis, you may want to consider some tar combinations. So I do have a formulation that I'm going to share with you that has done very well for us over the last 12 years. Let's first start off with topical steroids. And for those of you that are new as a derm PA, don't waste your time memorizing this chart. Just have something that you can refer back to. Familiarize yourself with a few of the low, mid, and strong steroids that you are comfortable with. This, this chart is very burdensome to have to memory. But what's important about steroids? You may have one company come up to you and say, that product is halogenated. So does that mean that's bad or does that mean it's good? I think really the potency is more important than anything where you're looking at. Are you dealing with a high, a mid, or a low? Because if you look at just halogenation alone, it really doesn't tell you that much because you could have a non-halogenated and a halogenated product be of equal potency measured by vasoconstriction. And the same thing goes with HP access suppression. It could be halogenated or it could be non-halogenated. So I would not focus as much on that as I would the potency. So again, in the vehicle, so if you have somebody uh, that's got 
scalp dermatitis, then obviously you want to maybe consider using an oil or a foam or a lotion, something that's not thick that you can apply to that particular area. And you also want to select a topical steroid that can knock it down and then talk about what do you do afterwards. So there's so many different ways to treating atopic dermatitis. It is an art. And if I do it this way and you do it a different way, that doesn't mean either one of us are right or wrong. The topical steroid risk that we see in kids, uh, I would say perioral dermatitis is one that we see a lot of from steroid use around the face. Do I see atrophy and thinning a lot of times from steroids? Maybe from the high potencies. Tend to see it when I use it more off-label for non-affected skin or non-thick skin like off-label for say vitiligo or some, some case like that. This is the one that, let's get everybody's poll on this one, hypopigmentation. How many people think the hypopigmentation is due to the disease? How many people think it's due to the actual topical steroid? What about hypopigmentation from the disease? I say that too, and I think the majority of it is due to the disease, but a lot of patients will say, I put on this medicine, three or four days later, it turned my, turned my child's skin white, I don't want to use that. So that's something that's very important to discuss, not only with primary care, but also with the patients themselves. How do I use topical steroids? I think of it in two phases. I want to rescue the flare, so I want to knock it down. And then I want to go to something called intermittent maintenance. And this sounds great on a slide, but let me tell you what's real world for your patients. If the skin is red, that is a flare. And that's when I'm going to use my topical steroid once to twice a day for one to two weeks. When my skin is pink, that's more kind of what I call maintenance, and it's kind of it's active, but it's not super flared. That's when I'm going to use the medicine two to three times a week. And then when it's clear, I'm going to stop using the topical steroid and just use my moisturizer. So if you talk to your patients in the term of red, pink, and clear, I think that's very, very important, especially for the pediatric population, for them to understand, instead of saying, okay, we're switching to maintenance, we're switching to a flare. So talking to you, I use those terms. Talking to my patients, it's red, pink, clear. And I think that means a lot to them. And there's great evidence that shows intermittent therapy is great. And there's been, uh, with less side effects, less atrophy, less HP excess suppression. So what happens is you may use a mid-steroid once to twice a day. You can use it for uh, a couple of weeks. You knock it down. And then you use it twice a week. So you may pick Monday, Thursday. You may pick just the weekends. However you want to do it, this is a great way to taper. And you can also taper by using less potent. So you may say, okay, I'm going to use a mid-steroid to knock it down, then I'm going to go to a lower steroid and taper that way. Multiple ways you can do it. You can taper the potency. You could also taper the frequency with that. And good articles to show that reference here. And I understand you have this in your, in your slides for your handout. I bet you if you took a poll in this room, everybody does wet wrap therapy different. And so what I'm going to tell you now is not the golden answer, but how I've done it and how I think the patients respond better. Because what I know they don't like is they don't like going to bed with a wet wrap. And I learned that quickly in residency. So I was taught in residency that you put the wet wrap and they fall asleep with it. And then I don't know, somebody mentioned my camp, you know, that we had earlier that we do. And at that camp, it's great because you get a hands-on experience of helping these kids. You put on their medicines with them. They really don't want to do a wet wrap to go to bed. They don't want to be cold. So you can do what's called a 20-minute wet wrap. 
on what I call the cartoon wet wrap. Get them through a cartoon 20 to 30 minutes and they'll do well. There are several different ways to do your wet wrap. A lot of people, even at, at Denver, at, at the children's there, they do a wet wrap with just moisturizer, which is, it works pretty well. You'd be surprised. It can super hydrate the skin. It's a great thing for patients with ichthyosis vulgaris. And so what you do is you take your moisturizer, they put it on, they put warm, wet pajamas on top of that, dry clothes, and they do that for 20 to 30 minutes. And it really does work better than just the moisturizer alone. I've been impressed. If I have a young kid and we're an older kid and I really want to knock down a flare, this is when we use the wet wrap therapy with the steroid. And at UNC where I trained, a lot of these patients were even hospitalized. They were in the hospital for a couple days and they would all clear, which showed you a lot about compliance because they could have done this at home, but they chose not to, some of these patients. And it also showed you a lot about efficacy. And that is, it worked almost as good as somebody going on oral steroids. So I thought that was great because it had less side effects and you could titrate it back and forth easier. So if I have a kid less than two years of age, so a young kid, I will often dilute a mid-steroid and I have to say we go for quantity sometimes, so that's triamcinolone, you can get it in a big jar. So we dilute it one to one for children less than two. They do the 20 minute wet wrap where they're gonna put the mid-steroid, warm wet pajamas, dry clothes, 20 to 30 minutes and make it through whatever their favorite cartoon is. And I think that speaks to the kid. Hey, just make it through your cartoon and you'll do well. Not sleeping with it. If they're two to three and older and they're more of a, what I call moderate flare, then we just go straight with the triamcinolone alone and we have them do this for about three to five days and then gradually decrease. And for some of our severe atopics, they may do a wet wrap with, with either a diluted steroid or the regular steroid on a weekend to kind of control them for more of the moderate to severe patients. Uh, you may say, God, that's a weird way to do a wet wrap. It may be different than what you've done, but what it helps with is compliance because these kids don't want to sleep with it. A lot of us are afraid to use stronger steroids in pediatric patients, and I, I think we should use them cautiously, so don't leave today's lecture thinking that I'm saying throw on class one and two steroids on all the kids, but there are some situations when young kids, and I'm talking even two and three year olds, well, you gotta go strong, especially if it's thick and lichenified and they're scratching like the Dickens at it, like their hands, their feet, elbows and knees, or they have dishydrotic type eczema or this bad numular one that seems to ooze constantly and constantly. Okay, I mentioned the tar steroid. This is a, so I would use a class two initially. So let's say I tried class two steroid and it didn't work. And you can see by this photo that this child has very thick lichenified atopic dermatitis of the hands Medium steroid didn't work, strong steroid didn't work, and so I had to you know, move to the tar steroid. Some people debate the safety of tar. I, think it, I personally think it's safe and it's been used a lot in psoriasis, and that's how I extrapolate that. This is the compound we use, and it sounds really strange. If you wanna jot it down, again, it's gonna be in your handout, and actually you know, one mile from here is the compounding pharmacy that does most of it for us. And that is taking a class two steroid. It doesn't have to be Diprosone. You can use Lidex ointment, Topicort ointment, the generics of that. Uh, you can pick the one that you use. Uh, it's mixed with liquid carbonous detergents. So 30 grams of steroid, four grams of the LCD, and then you add Aquaphor sufficient to equal 40 grams. So it's not huge, but you, you don't want them to go crazy with it. And you can control the amount of refills, obviously. It is highly effective. So if you haven't tried it, try it. It works really good for these kids that just you cannot clear on these fingers, these toes, and these really, really 
difficult areas. And it was something that, again, I was telling you, shared for a faculty member, and it was probably the biggest, one of the biggest pearls that, I, that I'll share with you about therapy. Now, we need non-steroidals as well. So we're now shifting gears to the TCIs or the calcineurin inhibitors, especially for facial application and for those severe patients where you may, let's say we went to intermittent steroid and we had that patient where we got to pink that we talked about earlier and we applied it two to three times a week, but it doesn't cut it. And that's a good place to maybe put the calcineurin inhibitor on the opposite days. So you're using something Monday, Wednesday, Friday, something Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, if, for example, if you want to do it that way. And that is a good way to alternate. We worry about perioral dermatitis, skin atrophy, and damage to the eye with using uh, steroids for a long period of time. Can you use topical steroids on the face? Yeah, you certainly can. I don't want you to think you can't, but over a long period of time, patients don't follow up with you. I mean, we have some patients that are using, you know, class two on the eyelid, on the face, and they just kind of borrow siblings' medication, and they keep going and going. So I think this is a good place, and these are good examples of patients who would benefit from tacrolimus or pimacrolimus or protopic or elidil, respectively, uh, for their face. Uh, do they burn and sting? Yes. Can you refrigerate it and put it in the refrigerator before they apply it? Yes. What if the mom calls and says, every time I put it on, they burn, it stings, and they go crazy? Put it on when they're asleep. Yeah, put them on when they're completely out like a light and they're going to bed, then put it on and then you'll do better. So tacrolimus comes in two different strengths. It's more for moderate to severe. I will go ahead and answer your questions. Yes, I use it in less than two. Yes, I use 0.1% for kids that are less than 15. Uh, I'll go ahead and mention that because that's a very common uh, question that we'll get. And yes, those are considered to be off-label. I do feel that the tacrolimus 0.1% is the most effective of the TCIs. Uh, Elodil uh, or pimacrolimus approved for mild to moderates, two and older. Uh, good safety data exists on this. I think uh, you know the black box warning called, caused a lot of anxiety in primary care, but I think in the dermatology world, which you're a significant part of, the anxiety is much less. And I tell them it's like the sweet and low package. It said that, yes, there was a problem in rats, and then they took it off sweet and low. So hopefully the same will happen with this particular product. Okay, so here's a good paradigm for most of your mild to moderate patients. You have a flare, address of infection. Then we look into using a topical steroid, maybe a class six or seven for the face, TCI for the face, a mid-steroid for the body. And then you get to this maintenance, again, which is kind of the pink skin. And then you're going to use your topical steroids two to three times a week. If it's really severe, you may alternate with a TCI on the other days. And then the barrier repair you can address with your regular moisturizers or some of these newer ceramide-based moisturizers that we talked about as well. Now we want to address secondary complications. And I bet you there's nobody in this room, you know, every, or I should say it this way, everybody in this room has had patients who are flared by atopic dermatitis and MRSA. And in Texas, it's a hotbed. It's very difficult to control. And so we'll address those, those concerns. So staff is the driving force in a lot of atopic patients. It, it certainly is. And sometimes it's so hard to clear. It goes from one child to the next. And it's just a, it's a crazy cycle. And some people have called staff the super antigen, the driving force of all the, of the T cell. And I think it is quite, quite amazing. Because you may have a patient, which I'll disagree with one of the slides, who doesn't look clinically infected that bad, 
but you're running out of options, and maybe you put them on an oral antibiotic and they cleared up, and you're like, wow, okay, well, you didn't look clinically infected, so stay, but you responded, so these people probably have subclinical staff that stimulates it. This very busy slide just shows you that infections can affect that barrier abnormality that we talked about. Remember, the barrier is important for permeability and also for antimicrobial things, and this is what stimulates the T cells. So for most cases, and I'm going to predate myself and say, let's go back four to five years ago. It would be cephalosporins and maybe augmentin or amoxicillin clavulanate for kids. But now with MRSA being so common in our atopic patients, it's really clindamycin, but preferably Bactrim, because if those of you have tried the clindamycin suspension, it will tear you up. It doesn't taste very good, and it is expensive. And if they have Medicaid or if they're not on a good insurance plan, clindamycin is expensive. Trimethoprim sulfate, yes, I know about Stevens-Johnson's. Yes, the sulfate sometimes scares me, and they can have horrendous allergic reactions. But that, in our Dallas-Fort Worth community, uh, trimethoprim sulfate is prescribed more often than clindamycin, at least among the pediatric community for MRSA. Okay, how does MRSA present an atopic? Well, yes, it can come in as boils and pustules, but usually this is what happens. It comes as refractory dermatitis with oozing. So you can culture if you want. We, we don't culture quite as much as we probably should, but we do. And this is a, a great example. And this, is, this slide's about seven years old, and that is when I started seeing a lot of MRSA. You know, Houston and Dallas were one of the first areas, along with Florida and California, that got MRSA. So if you looked at this kid, I put him on cephalexin, just like we normally would have seven or eight years ago. He comes back, and there's like no response. And we're using, you know, mid-steroids on the body, you know, good steroids on the face, or TCI, and zero, zero response. And all we did for this particular child, and at that time I used more Clinda than Bactrim, but now I use more Bactrim, put him on clindamycin, did not even alter one bit the topical therapy. Didn't change it a bit. And you see the result. And so it really tells you that, that staff can be a driving force and that you have to think about MRSA as well. So trimethoprim sulfates, it's dosed to get, uh, primarily from the trimethoprim part. It tastes pretty well. So for kids, it, it's a good suspension. About 10 milligrams per kilogram per day divided BID. If they're a 12-year-old kid and older, just treat them like an adult and you can give them the, the pill. For clindamycin, it's typically about 30 milligrams per kilogram per day divided TID. In, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, there's 10% clindamycin resistance to MRSA. And so Bactrim is probably your number one choice as well. What if neither one of those work and you have a culture that says MRSA, then you can add rifampin. And you can do rifampin for about two weeks and just let them know that it turns their urine a little bit on the pink side. And uh, that often will help patients as well. What if the 10 days or two weeks doesn't work? that happens in some of our most severe atopics, think about going three to four weeks. And that's why I feel a little bit better about using Bactrim if I'm going to give them an extended course. I should tell you, we even have some kids, about 15 in our practice, that are so horrific uh, atopics, and they bounce around between infectious disease at Dallas and at Fort Worth Children's, that they're on Bactrim almost in a prophylaxis dose. They take it three times a week. And I'm not advocating that for your all your patients, but that's how bad it is with some of our patients. Uh, what about reducing staff? This was an article that just came out in the uh, PEDS journal, and it said that the chronic use of dilute bleach baths with intermittent use of bupirocin decreased the severity of atopic patients with 
signs of secondary bacterial infections. And I, this is where my question marks are because it said patients with atopic dermatitis do not seem to have increased susceptibility to infection or colonization with resistant strains of staph aureus. And I totally disagree with that. I, I think that my atopic patients are the worst ones. They're the ones that typically have more MRSA than everybody else. And so I kind of, and this came out of Illinois, but I really disagree particularly with that. What about bleach? In the particular study, they used a half a cup diluted in a standard 40 to 50 gallon tub, and they did it twice weekly along with mupirocin in the nose. So I kind of did a literature search to see what are the different dilutions of bleach and what should we be recommending to our patients and especially taking into account some of the kits. <clears throat> so the dilution was two microliters per milliliter. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? So speak English, it's a half cup filled into a standard 40 to 50 gallon tub that is a, either a quarter to a half filled. So what we do in our clinic is that we tell them to fill the tub halfway, put a quarter cup if they're less than two, and put a half a cup if they're two and older. And is that the best one? Maybe it's kind of in line with what you see here. So I think it does well. I also learned from other talks that the cleansing bars can carry MRSA, so they want to use a pump dispenser, and there's been reports of people getting MRSA from their pets, so we always keep that in mind as a possible source of the MRSA if it's passing around. For people who do not want to do bleach, can't handle bleach, then chlorhexidine or hibiclens is another option that they can use. And so they did a Cochrane analysis on this clinical infected. They said, we, find, we failed to find any evidence that commonly used anti-staph interventions are clinically helpful in people with eczema that is not clinically infected. And again, that's me. I've had a few patients who I am at my wit's end, and I don't know what else to do, and they don't look like they're super infected, but I've tried the antibiotic, and they seem to have improved. And that's not everybody. That's some folks. So... I kind of say to myself, you personally in your own clinic, even though the study's out there, look at your patient. If you've, you've done everything you possibly can and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm one, one foot in the door for cyclosporin or systemics, then maybe you ought to try a, a long three-week course of antibiotics to see if that does help. Molluscum. Chicken or the egg? What comes first? The molluscum or the eczema or vice versa? You can have both stories. The most important thing about molluscum is to address the surrounding eczema dermatitis. Know that some molluscums can get very inflamed. They can be co-infected with MRSA as well. And their MRSA can get so infected that they get an id reaction on their arms, similar to where you see the id reactions from patients who have nickel dermatitis, patients who have tinea capitis or a carry-on that can give you id reactions, they can look very, very similar. So whether you treat the molluscum, we tend to treat it if it's a bad atopic patient. Uh, you also at least have to treat the dermatitis. We typically will use a mid-steroid to treat that. Uh, warts can also be a problem sometimes. Uh, we use cryotherapy a lot, just probably like a lot of you do. The big thing to know is if they've got warts, probably not a good candidate for using tretinoin or Retin-A or any of those type of products if they have a background of atopic dermatitis. Eczema herpeticum. Okay, we need to stop on this one because it's very important, and that is this primary HSV infection, rapid onset of lesions, usually associated with fever, and it can really surprise you sometimes because it doesn't always happen in the most severe patients, but it typically happens in people who are undertreating their atopic dermatitis and they're not doing a good job with that. And so there was a lot of you know, uh, literature asking the question, do steroids 
predispose you to eczema herpeticum? Well, they really found out that the steroid doesn't increase the risk. It's more that they were undertreated. And it leaves these punched out ulcers. You can see it when it's around the face or the eye. You need to do an eye consult, which is really important if it's around the eye because they can get a keratitis. And also keep in mind a lot of eczema herpeticum that's been going on for three days probably needs an oral antibiotic as well as an oral antiviral to cover that. There is no consensus among the proper dosage in kids for eczema herpeticum, but I polled a lot of my colleagues and myself, and this is the dose that I found to be the most effective that I wanted to share with you. So if you, if you have somebody who comes in with regular herpes simplex, no big deal, you could probably get by with 40 per kilo per day divided TID. But for, for this, for eczema herpeticum, bump it up to about 60 milligrams per kilogram per day divided TID. And then if you have somebody that has shingles or zoster, then you can bump that up to 80 milligrams per kilogram per day. So this is kind of the dose informally that we have found that works probably the best for kids that have eczema herpeticum. Okay, before lighting systems, I gotta see where we are on time. I have till, I think, 1.30. So we're, that's gonna give us some opportunity for question and answer, and that's great. Anytime before I think about going to light therapy or going to systemic therapy, I have to think, is this not contact dermatitis? Am I making a mistake? Are they allergic to the steroid? Are they allergic to something else? And so uh, we don't do a, a huge amount of patch testing compared to the, those of you that see adults, but we'll do a fair share of it for those patients who are more of the severe type or refractory. And so a lot of the studies show that nickel, cobalt, gold, and thimerosal are probably the most common. I would say in our, in our clinic, the ones that I go, oh, I wish I would have patch tested you earlier. And you don't know what patients are applying at home because we forget to ask, is neomycin. I, I cannot believe how many atopic cases I've had where I'm like, gosh, we can't clear them up. We're using class twos, nothing's working. And then finally I go, what else are you all using? And they go, oh, we just put neosporin on it. And I'm like, oh, it's the neosporin. They stop the neosporin and then they get better. So you don't always have to patch test to make that uh, assumption or association, but a lot of times, you got to watch out for how much in the pediatric community the parents use Neosporin, the spray, the ointment, all kinds of stuff combined with hydrocortisone. So beware of neomycin. The other ones, for those of you who've been to my talks from the previous year and for those of you that might have been to, at SCOPE that was held earlier, there's some other patterns to be very familiar with within the pediatric community. So starting left and kind of going uh, right uh, here, one is the car seat. Okay, so car seat contact dermatitis is increase the articles coming out. I think in next month's Pediatric Dermatology Journal, we're not sure what it is, but it may be this thing called dimethyl furate. We're still trying to figure it out. But some kids who present with seven really bad areas, like both arms, uh, under, the, under the thighs, on both sides of the legs, and on the scalp, if they're laying down and don't have the uh, cover on the car seat, they won't respond to anything. It'll be awful. It's your most refractory dermatitis, and that's car seat contact dermatitis. Neoprene can give you an eyelid atopic picture, and that is from the, uh, from the swim goggles. What you see on the bottom left is a diaper dye dermatitis, because we're always taught that uh, atopic dermatitis in, in infants is uncommon in the diaper area. Usually you're dealing with seborrheic dermatitis, maybe you're dealing with psoriasis, but if they're itching like crazy and it's on their buttocks, think about the dyes. It's usually the pink 
or green dye that's doing it, and it goes on the back portions of the buttocks. If it's in this area right here, with kind of in a gun holster distribution, a lot of times it's due to the adhesive that's in the diaper as well. And so those are two different patterns where you're like, wow, is this kid not responding? Could be the diaper itself, and they have to go with some dye-free or chlorine-free diapers. Uh, over in the middle slide, over here is shin guards. Many of you have seen that with your athletes, softball players, soccer players. It's debatable. Is it allergic? Are they allergic to formaldehyde resin or is it irritant? The latest literature says it's more irritant. Duct tape on the back side of the shin guard is a great pearl to put on there. So when they're putting the shin guard on, it's actually the duct tape that's, that's doing that. It goes through socks. It goes through, you name it. Eight, maybe ace wrap is a good idea, but it, go, it usually goes through socks a lot of times. You can wash them to death. It just happens, especially under heat and under occlusion. The last one on the far right is the toilet seat contact dermatitis. Again, not sure if it's irritant or allergic. It usually happens on the back of the thighs, very difficult to clear, and you have to see if the culprit toilet seat is washed with some chemical that's irritating or perhaps they're allergic or having problems with some of the wood finish as well. And that's all the new articles about that. What about light therapy? We have narrowband light therapy in our office, and uh, I, I like it. But I will tell you, uh, our patient population comes from a long way, and it's sometimes very inconvenient. So that is the biggest shortcoming of light therapy is they have to usually come to your office two to three times a week. It works great for the paritis. To me, clinically, when I look at it, I don't see the, the lesions vanishing or clearing up as much as they say, wow, he's itching less, this light therapy is working. But when I look at it, I'm like, really? Okay. But if he's itching less, that's great. And so light therapy is used UVB for people who have chronic pruritus, parigo, different conditions, and we prefer the narrowband type. Insurance coverage is also an obstacle for us with atopic dermatitis because for some reason when we give him the 691.8, the atopic code, it's a problem. When we give him the psoriasis code, it's no problem. But for at least this is probably just maybe endemic in Texas. And there's studies that show that it is effective for atopic uh, dermatitis. Uh, I think it is safer than being outside, so I'm, I'm a proponent of it, but it's inconvenient for a lot of our patients. Okay, what about systemic agents? So now you've got that patient that we talked about that you've done all the moisturizers in the world, you've done everything you could do, topicals, you tried the tar, you threw the three weeks of oral antibiotics, you did everything. You just, you mean, you're looking for an answer. I think that's sometimes when you have to think about systemic agents. And so let's go through that with our next, let's make sure I'm good about time, next 20 minutes or so. So looking at oral steroids, cyclosporin, mycophenolate, mofetil, and azothioprine. And I will tell you, the, the thing about oral steroids is when people ask, it's usually, no, we usually don't do oral steroids, but there's always an exception to the rule. And we have patients who you may go, gosh, you know, maybe I can give them three weeks, four weeks, do a slow taper, not this five-day Medrol dose pack, but something gradual. Maybe I can buy some time. Maybe they'll clear up and do well. And so we have a couple of these patients per year that we'll do this for, and yes, it does work pretty well. And we try to, you know, be very uh, involved and make sure they're not just doctor hopping and getting oral steroids from everybody around and, and not just you. And so I do use it, but you know when you have the rebound, it's a vicious cycle. So if I do do it, that's where my wet wraps come into play because I use my wet wrap as to help prevent the rebound from the oral steroid. So that's an, an, an important thing to, to do for those patients. And, and realize if they do the five-day one, it comes back. So two to three weeks often will give me to buy some time, and it does work. 
How many times is too much? That's another fair question for oral steroids. I would say if I do it twice a year, I'm okay with that. Once I start getting more than that, then I need to start thinking about something else like cyclosporin. Okay, which brings us to that. So cyclosporin is a calcineurin inhibitor. It uh, decreases T-cell function. It is off-label. So all these things that we're talking about in this section of systemics are considered off-label for atopic dermatitis, especially in kids. Now, the typical course for our practice is around six months. And when I try to explain to our families how this works, I tell them it's my Control-Alt-Delete on the computer. It is rebooting his system. It is rebooting atopic dermatitis in your child, hoping that we can start over and start afresh and maybe he'll do well. And for some kids, they do the six months, they come off, and they look great for like a year or two. Some people, they come off it, and within a month, you're back looking for something else. You may have to transition the cell set. You have to do oral steroids as you transition to cell set. It can be tough, but for a lot of patients, it's done well. Some people go with short course cyclosporin, which is defined as six to eight weeks. Some people go with more of the long course, uh, four to six months. I know some of you guys who use cyclosporin more than I do, especially for psoriasis, probably go with longer courses. But in the pediatric community, the six month is usually considered to be the most common. Uh, the contraindications, if they have kidney impairment or malignancy or high blood pressure, those are the main ones that we look for. And then there's other things to look for, you know, so for like pregnancy, immunodeficiency. Uh, these are some of the supportive studies. These will be in your handout if you want to go back to looking at them. And really what it addresses, what is the appropriate dose? Is it a 5 milligram per kilogram per day? Is it a 2.5 milligram per kilogram per day? And how long do you do it? This was an article, it'll be in your handout on your disc, and it looks at short course versus longer course, and again, I'm a more proponent for the longer course with cyclosporin. The other pediatric dermatologist is a good friend of mine in Dallas. She likes the short course. She does a short course, I think, for only a couple of weeks and doesn't check labs, but I found those patients in which we tried it rebounded more, and so we, we prefer the longer course, which I'll talk about. The, these are the labs, and these are all going to be in your handout. So I've got it all detailed. So for those of you that you know, are going to consider using this on your atopic patients, everything's in there. Uh, I think hopefully my email's available. If you guys want a consent, because we have the consents already typed out, I'd be more than happy to share that with you. Uh, I'll even give you my email right now. It's uh, fgali, F-G-H-A-L-I, at pol.net and stands for Physicians Online. F G H A L I at pol.net and we've got it. We just you know it's a, it's a Microsoft. Uh, it's already in kind of a Word spreadsheet and we just you know send it to you. And it kind of I don't know if it protects you from everything, but at least gives a detail for the patients of what they're doing and what the protocol is. And so we check the baseline labs, blood pressure is what we watch closely, physical exam, and then we see them and do these blood checks every two weeks for two months, then monthly while on medication. This is a dose that we, we played around with the different doses. The five milligram per kilogram per day is by far the best dose for kids for atopic dermatitis. We used to start low and go up high. Now we prefer just starting with five milligrams per kilogram per day and two divided doses. Once we see the improvement after generally about one or two months, then we take them down to about three to four milligrams per kilogram per day for a couple of more months, and then we gradually bring them off about a six-month period. If they have any lab changes, then we need to, we sometimes consult our renal friends, and then we'll cut the dose in half. 
No, a lot of times we wonder whether a brand or a generic makes a lot of difference when it comes to medications. And you guys probably, again, use more of this product than I do for psoriasis. And for us, and this is just our patients talking. I'm not here to, I don't have any conflict of agreement with whoever makes New Oral. I don't even remember who makes it, to be honest. But our patients tell us that the brand does better than the generic for this particular medication. And I think that's one of the few times where I'll be really adamant about fighting the insurance that they get the neoral brand for these atopic patients who need it. Because it, the parents tell us a lot. We can learn from them, certainly. Uh, there's some things that can increase uh, cyclosporin levels. Uh, luckily, they're usually not on all these typical medications. Erythromycin's on back order <laughs> in the US, so they're probably not on that one. Uh, grapefruit juice, juice has always been the one to tell them to avoid. How many kids drink that? Very, <laughs> very few, right? And then uh, drugs that may lower the levels. Rifampin, if you're treating MRSA, one to be uh, aware of. And then uh, there's some other ones that are included in your handout. So kidney, liver, and high blood pressure are the main things that we watch for. And obviously immunosuppression for patients that are on uh, cyclosporin. Of the systemics that we use, this is the one that I favor because I think this is the one that does the best. But it's also one that when the six months is over, I really don't, I can't go right back to it. I have one girl that did great for six months, and then we played around with different ones, and she did so-so for two years, and now she's going to go do cyclosporin again after about a two-year two -year break. I don't know what the correct answer is, what is the proper break between cyclosporin, but certainly a year or two has got to be uh, safe. This is my second choice in that cell set. By raise of hands, how many of you guys have used the cell set? Are you all using a lot of it? Not too many. You know, at UT Southwestern, uh, a lot of the professors there were using CELSEP for different conditions. You know, it's used a lot for inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, it's used now for a lot of the rheumatologic conditions. There's lupus patients that are on it. And there's been more and more literature, both adult and pediatric, looking at mycophenolate mofetil as a potential option. The thing that you have to know about this medicine is it's slow to work. It is not as quick as cyclosporin. So that patient who's severe that I start on cyclosporin, he may look better in one to two weeks. And I don't need any oral steroids to bridge the gap there. But if I'm gonna just rely on the Celsept or the mycophenolate mofetil, I'm gonna have this period of about six weeks where everybody's gonna be looking at each other like this. <laughs> We're waiting for the medicine to work because it doesn't work immediately. So you may need something to bridge the gap. I think it's probably safer than cyclosporin. I really do. I think it is, it is safer. And you can use it for a longer period of time. I have one kid that's been on it for a long time, over a year. Every time I take him off or taper, he flares back up. And so there's about three or four of our kids in our clinic who do very, very well with a, with a mycophenolate mofetil. There are some, in your handout that you can go back to, there are some studies that look at that. And you can see in this top one, you know, you had 29% who had 90%, five patients had additional 60, 90%, only 7% failed to respond. It works well, but not all kids respond to it. So uh, usually I see more effectiveness with cyclosporin than I do with, with this one, but I've certainly had several kids do well with this one. And it is a safe one. So if you have a kid that you have to put on long-term systemics with a bad, bad atopic dermatitis is probably the one that I would uh, uh, go with right here. And these are the dosing. Most of our kids are older, so they typically will do 500 milligrams twice daily, and then we get them up to 1,000 milligrams twice daily, and then the exact doses are 30 to 40 milligrams per kilogram per day. 
And there's some interactions to be aware of. Uh, really, it's acyclovir. If you have somebody with uh, herpes, eczema herpeticum and this, that acyclovir may alter the level slightly. And uh, cyclosporin and Bactrim and those type of medicines do not affect uh, this particular medicine. And again, in your handout, this will be there. And we also have another separate uh, uh, consent for this. So we do the baseline lab, CBC, liver, and renal. We check them for month one weekly, then we kind of space it out to every two weeks, and then finally monthly. So I feel like this medicine's doing quite well. The, the problem with, the, with, with this medicine is it kind of got some negative uh, publicity because of this uh, thing we'll talk about here called PML, here this leukencephalopathy. These are the, uh, the contraindications, like most of the immunosuppressants, vaccines, pregnancy, this sort of thing. And uh, I haven't had a lot of nausea or diarrhea with, with uh, Celsep, uh, Mycophilic Mofetil. They've done pretty well. The lab parameters, and we're only talking about maybe eight kids, but their lab parameters have been pretty good. And luckily, we have not experienced this progressive multifocal leukencephalopathy, which I know has been attached to some of the biologics as well as to this medicine as well. And so uh, we tell them that, but we haven't had any uh, problems with that. Emiran's kind of my third place, but if we were talking in the UK at this time, they would say it was their first one. So the people in the, uh, in the UK, I hope I didn't offend any Brits there by that. <laughs> All my cousins are British. And that if you talk to them, the Pedsderm there, they like Emiran. They like azathioprine. They use it quite more than we use the cyclosporin. Uh, it inhibits purine synthesis, similar to uh, mycophilate mofetil. Uh, you have to check this uh, transpurine methyltransferase enzyme to make sure it's being broken down properly. If their levels are normal, then we'll talk about the dosing. I'll kind of go through this one quickly. I only have two kids on it, and we were one out of two, so it wasn't a great, great response. This is the article from Britain looking at uh, children treated with it. 28 had an excellent response out of 48, 13 had a good response, and seven had a poor response. And so they feel that it is a good medication to use. They were using it uh, from six months to a year for these patients that had severe eczema. And I know it's, it's gaining a little bit more popularity among the US PD derms, but I, I would still say that cyclosporin and Cellcept are, are probably the two that are used most among the PEDS derm community for that. And included in your handout are the labs, uh, the guidelines, to check with that, and the dosing as well. It's, again, it's my, it's my third place uh, item. So I wanna end a little bit early if we can, that way we have time for uh, questions. And that is, we talked about barrier repair. We talked about how it's important for permeability. It's also a, uh, important for antimicrobial barrier, and that the ceramides probably do benefit our patients that are having increased transepidermal water loss, that the topical steroids, choosing the correct potency, knowing how to do this red, pink, clear that I mentioned to you, how to decrease it, how not to be afraid at some point to use stronger topical steroids in children. You can control that by giving them small quantities and no refills if you're concerned about that particular family. To maybe consider using this tar steroid combination that sounds kind of wacky if you've never used it. It's kind of got a smell to it and sometimes it can stain the sheets a little bit but it's effective for, for those uh, patients who are real refractory. Uh, to address staph, eczema herpeticum and molluscum, and then lastly, systemic agents are obviously not for everybody, but therefore are reserved for our most severe atopic patients. And I think it's going to give us about 10 minutes of time uh, for questions. Thank you. Great, Dr. 
Great talk, Dr. Kylie. Uh, question about what is your favorite uh, recipe for puritis and, you know, like uh, using like hydroxyzine or something like that? Oh, the, for puritis? And that's always a tough one. If you kind of look at clinically, my answer is the sedating antihistamines are probably better than the non-sedating ones. And so hydroxyzine or Atarax given at night probably is used because it makes them sleepy and they go to bed. If you do like a true literature search on it, there's nothing that really shows that the use of antihistamines helps a whole lot for atopic dermatitis in general, you know, even the non-sedating ones. But we use it for its sedating properties, I have to be honest. So we use it some, but we don't depend on it as much as we do some of our topical uh, preparations. Ms. Channing? Hey, Fred. Hi, um, atopic children grow up to be atopic adults sometime, and I have one of those who's been on a systemic since he was that high. Oof. Currently, he's on Emuran, and I don't know all that much about it other than I check his labs frequently. How long can I leave him on it? That's a good question. I, you know, I don't know what the right answer is. I can tell you that there are people who are on Emuran for years and years for inflammatory bowel disease and for rheumatologic conditions, and they do well. As far as the studies, when we look at Imuran in the pediatric population, those were six months to a year. So your question, Channing, is just like my CELSEP question, and that is I have this kid on it for now going on two years, and when I taper him, he flares. How long is too long? I really don't know, to be honest, but I feel that I look at what other disease conditions have been treated and how those people have been on it for a long time, so I tend to continue it, but every six months, I tell the family, hey, there's not a lot of people on this medication, I think it's safe, I'm looking at other diseases and how long they use them, and this is what I'm going by, but there's not a lot of, you know, our colleagues that share this kind of information unless it's published. So my answer to you would be, I would feel safe being on it for extended period of time as long as the, the, the labs are safe. And Imuran is a, a fairly, fairly safe medicine. Okay. Second one is they always said, oh, you can only use cyclosporin for a year, and then that's it for your whole life. Yes. Do you buy into that? Yeah, that's how I've been taught. I think I am. I mean, look at me. I'm even worse than that. I'm six months, and I feel like, it, you know, that's it. You're off it. But uh, they're off, you know, I guess for y'all, for those of you that treat psoriasis, so look at another disease, you probably haven't. What would y'all do for psoriasis? By, by? Yeah, so that's kind of what I'm, and that's, that's exactly kind of what I'm doing. I do six months and give them a break, and then sometimes we come back to it as well. So, but you're right, I don't really have anybody on it up to a year. I haven't. I think my kidney folks have biased me because I did general peds before, but okay. I'm, Thank I'm you. scared. Thank you. Next question. That's actually a couple of my questions because I used to do pediatric bone marrow transplant and we used MMF all the time as well as cyclosporin and I saw some many um, peds in renal failure, many of the kids because of the cyclosporin and then the MMF we used to check levels. I don't know if you check levels of the MMF. Checking Every, levels with Imuran, I'm blood, blood levels of the MMF, of the mycophenolate. With MMF, I have not. You don't? Yeah, I have not checked with that. If they're on another immunosuppressant, then yes, we definitely would want to do that. Yeah. So and you're talking about people who are on Celsip and Cyclosporin together? No, no. We, we would sometimes do them together, but they were okay. typically one or the other. Yeah. So usually start them on Cyclosporin, but this is higher dosing. 
and that's probably why I saw you know, all the renal uh, failure. You know, all three of those systemics, we you notice I didn't recommend checking yeah. levels. We I know, and that's what I was wondering. I, we you, haven't done it, but my renal friends tell me, oh, that dose isn't too high. You probably are okay. But right. If you wanted to, I guess you, uh, I guess you could. Yeah, and then my other question is, um, ever use a Tannercept for I have off not, but I know that one of my friends, Jennifer Cather, who I think may be speaking at this meeting, I've always bounced that off her. And from what I understand that the literature says it hasn't done as well, I know Humira was trying to do a similar yeah. study in atopic patients. I'm, I know there's a study going on in PEDS for that, but yeah. I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't know, have any of the, the information okay. on it. Have you, I, has anybody had a good experience with biologics and I've heard of a atopic couple. Or? I don't know. I had one other question with the MMF, sorry, with the Salcept. Are you worried about S, you know, increased risk of squamous cell? Because that's what I'm not kidney... worried about squamous cell? Yeah, because that's what kidney transplant patients well, I are on. I some protect, but no, I'm... I'm I know, I just wonder yeah. if you'd see them I haven't peds. been too worried. No, okay. No. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I, I had a kid with um, the car seat uh, dermatitis. Did you? It was probably after one of these lectures, and I asked the mom, D would you happen to have a Graco car seat with the silvery metallic, the look on her face? She thought I was psychic. It was, it was really priceless. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, wow. But my, my question is, can you go over the dosing of oral steroids? Um, for oral steroids? Yeah. Uh, for, if you're going to do a, th and we'll do probably a three-week one for oral steroids, we go with one milligram per kilogram per day, and then we gradually taper that over probably a two to three week period. And so, you know, for example, if they're gonna do, say, 40 milligrams, and we'll do 40 for a few days, 35 for a few days, 30 for a few days, and we'll just keep going down over a, a, a two week period. That's kind of how we do it, to gradually prevent the, the rebound. Okay, if we don't have any other questions, then we'll go ahead and conclude, and I look forward to seeing you guys in about two hours. I'm really excited about the next talk because it's uh, skin signs of systemic disease, and I think it's going to be a lot of things that you don't commonly get to see in the pediatric uh, environment. Thank you.